We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And woman, of course. Of course, when Lyndon Johnson spoke those words, it was just all about men, I suppose. At least that's what government was like. Boy, we've changed for the better since then. And in 1933, when America was in the depths of the Depression, uh, let me just see here. Yes, in 1933, when America was in the depths of the Depression, New president Franklin Roosevelt's top aide assigned reporter Lorena Hitchcock to go into the field and report back to him, the field being the United States. The president wanted to know the realities of how people's lives across America were being affected. It made a difference in how Hopkins and Roosevelt shaped policies to improve the lives of Americans. Needs were assessed and addressed. Uh, Jump forward 82 years, we find our guest today, Yes! Magazine co-founder Sarah Van Gelder, echoing this historic journey. Her new book is called The Revolution Where You Live, stories from a 12,000-mile journey through a new America. This book is different, very different, of course, in that the author finds extraordinary things ordinary people are doing To take the old bull by the horns and red states and blue states, people acting locally to address things like climate change, economic inequality, and racism in a lot of diverse places, Montana, Appalachia, Dallas, desolate neighborhoods of Detroit and Newark. And in her uh, 12-year-old pickup and camper, she visited 18 states, five Indian reservations, big cities, and small towns to see what people are doing at the local level for their own communities, under the radar, getting things done that the federal government is not doing. Like her 1930s predecessor, Lorena Hickok, what she finds can be useful in creating a better America. In addition to being co-founder and executive director of Yes! magazine, that's Yes! with an exclamation point, Sarah Van Gelder speaks on leading-edge innovations that show that another world is not only possible, it is being created. Sarah has traveled and lived in Latin America, India, China. She was founding board member and resident of Winslow Co-Housing and previously was a television and radio producer, a community organizer, classical Indian dancer, founder of a cooperative of food co-ops that linked organic farmers to urban markets, and she's the author of two previous books, This Changes Everything and Sustainable Happiness, and the new book just coming out is The Revolution Where You Live. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. How did you decide to write this book? Please tell us about its genesis, how it came into being. 
Well, I decided first to do the road trip, and then I decided to do the book. So <laughs> this came into being That's after right. 20 years of editing Yes! magazine and looking all over the place for great stories to tell our readers about how change is possible. We're, despite our name, Yes!, we're not optimistic that things are all going to turn out rosy. <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not sort of looking at the world through yeah. pink eyeglasses. But we do think there are possibilities for change, and we do think that people are amazingly intelligent and creative, and that when they put their minds to it, really good things can happen. And that's the kind of stories that we tell in Yes! Magazine. And after 20 years of doing that, I just felt like it was time for me to go out of the office, see for myself mm. if some of the big challenges that we've been, been looking for solutions to, if those, if those solutions are out there in ways that we hadn't grasped yet at the office. So I decided to go see for myself. Interesting. Wow, that that is fascinating, and it sounds like uh, oh, an interesting environment being in that uh, old Toyota pickup and a, a little camper. Something about a snail, was it? That's right. <laughs> like being a little shell. And well, I figured if I had my own camper, I could go anywhere I wanted. I didn't have to be restricted to places where I knew somebody or where I could find a hotel. I could go out to Indian reservations or stay out on ranches or or visit it, visit cities that didn't necessarily have a lot of infrastructure. So it gave me a chance to do that. I had some Native friends of mine. I live on an Indian reservation out here near Seattle. I had some Native artist friends of mine paint the camper before I went. Yeah. And I, you know, I thought they would do some little insignia on the front, but they, they turned the entire camper into a giant snail shell, which seemed just ah. right because really that truck doesn't go very fast, so a snail seemed like just about the right pace. But also because... It was slow journalism. It was, ah. instead of parachuting in, catching the story, and leaving, I was taking my time. I was spending days and sometimes as much as a week in a community listening to people's stories. I often didn't know what the story would be when mm. I first arrived. And I just, I just followed what people said was important to them and where their excitement was. I also used social media. People got on my Facebook and my uh -huh. blog and said, you know, you should come visit us and here's something exciting that's happening in our community. And I, if I could, I would, I would stop by and, and visit them and see what I could learn. So actual journalism, how quaint, huh? I mean, these days <laughs> when, when uh, you know, reporters just, uh, it seems worse than ever in terms of, you know, being a pack mentality, just coming in, getting some kind of story, the same story everybody else is getting, actually looking into it, spending time with it, seeing what comes out of it. I kind of like that idea. I guess I must be an old-fashioned conservative in many, many ways. I like the Constitution, stuff like that, the sense of a republic. Now, we've all heard the, the slogan, the bumper sticker, think globally, act locally. Frankly, it seems like this is rather in keeping with that. And, and you write that your mission on this journey was to, quote, find out if the places at the margins of society might have answers. What did you mean and, and, and what did you find? And how did you determine which margins of society you would uh, find yourself going to? The places I chose were places where people are not comfortable, where people have not settled for the status quo. And in many cases, because they've been left out of the status quo, they haven't had that uh -huh. option. So I, I wanted to go to places where people are struggling with that, but also find out what they're doing about it. I figured if they're not attached to things as they are, they may be more free to be creative, to come up with their own solutions. 
So I decided to go places, some places I already knew about, or at least some regions of the country I was curious about. I was curious about the north and the northwest where people were with, often with the leadership of Native American tribes, like at Standing Rock, but this was before Standing Rock. People were resisting new fossil fuel infrastructure, which, as we know, is, is a contributor to the oh, yeah. crisis of, of climate change. Yes. So I wanted to find out what people were able to do in their communities that could have an impact on such a big global question as climate change. I wanted to go to the Rust Belt because that's a region that has now been left out of global prosperity. Yes. It, it formerly was a place, of course, where there was an enormous numbers of manufacturing jobs, and, and now people in many of those communities are feeling abandoned and don't know what to do next. I wanted to find out what people are choosing to do for themselves to rebuild their economy. And the other thing I wanted to learn about is how people are taking on the difficult and long-standing question of racism, mm. because our country is incredibly divided. It has this, dec- this centuries-long, many centuries-long legacy of slavery and then Jim Crow. What's happening now? Are people in their communities able to take on this issue in a way that perhaps we haven't been able to take it on at a national scale? So those were the three main questions I was I went out with, and sort of general ideas of the regions of the country that I, where I wanted to explore those questions. But of course, reality, real life is very different than that. So I found people really thinking about the economy in places all over the country, and really thinking about the climate and and their local environment everywhere. And the same with racism. So in all cases, things are far more complex and far more intertwined than my very simple. Uh, set of questions as I set out. Interesting, interesting. It's always great to not know. I mean, to me, I love not knowing and opening up and seeing what there is. And uh, fascinating stuff. And the cover of this book, I should tell the listeners who can't see it, it is it is colorful. And the title of the book is The Revolution Where You Live. Our guest is author Sarah Van Gelder. And I believe that's you sitting on top of the uh, roof of your pickup of the uh, the painted snail. It's very colorful, and uh, there's a sense of optimism in there, which is hard to do these days, for sure. And in comparison to Lorena Hickok's mission, which had been under uh, with her lover Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, she was. Her mission was to find and identify local problems which the federal government might fix with big solutions. You say that the most effective answers today might better be smaller and more local. And you've gone over some of the problems, climate change, racism, things like that. Uh, I don't know if there are some specific uh, things that stand out that you found that might be you know, smaller and more local solutions to issues like, uh, uh, you know, global climate change and uh, the problems of globalism being left behind, all those things. What did you find? Oh, that's what the entire book is about, is yeah. one story after another of communities that that they, they didn't reach utopia. And I, I think it's right. a real mistake to think we will ever reach utopia. Yeah. But they did find really specific, really important ways to move forward. So, for example, when I was in North Dakota, I visited one place, uh, the Fort Berthold Reservation, which has been overrun by the boom of fracking. Mm. So you could say that's real prosperity, and Mm. it has brought jobs and money, but it's also brought corruption. It's brought a tremendous amount of crime, Mm. drug abuse, human trafficking. 
it's really divided the community between those who had a had some profits from that fracking boom and those who didn't. So it's created this enormous set of problems as well as all the pollution. The air, even though it's it's in this wide open country, the air is full of hydrocarbons. You can see oh, the smog as, as the sun sets. Uh, the <clears throat> there's been radioactive waste spread around, uh, you know, on, on the countryside. So real problems in this in this community. And then I visited another reservation, the Turtle Mountain Chippewa Reservation in northern North Dakota. Uh-huh. And there an elder had brought the women together and said, you know, there's this thing called fracking, and it seems to be headed our direction. Is this, is this a good thing? Hmm. And the women started researching it. And the, the reason she brought the women together is because they have a traditional role in their, in their culture for protecting the water. They started researching right. fracking, and they realized, no, this was a tremendous hazard to the community, and it was a hazard to the natural environment. They took it to the tribal council, and the tribal council held a big community meeting, they ended up agreeing that it would be a problem, and they voted unanimously to ban fracking from their reservation. And I, I visited there and, and interviewed the tribal chairman several years after they made that decision and said, so, you know, is that a good decision? Are you happy with that? Hmm. And he goes, yeah, you know, they say that money can't buy happiness, and, and you can sure tell that by looking at what's happening over there in Fort Berthold, the place with all the, the fracking boom. And he said, I believe in making money the old-fashioned way. I earn it. Hmm. And this guy's a small business guy, you know. He he doesn't need to have this huge infusion of money. He just wants life to be good for him and for mm. the people that he represents. And I noticed as I was leaving the reservation, a, a great big, huge windmill. They're, they're actually tapping into wind power, which they have in abundance, and which they can tap into and still keep their water pristine and still keep their way of life intact. And I just thought that was such an interesting contrast. That's just one of the kinds of examples of from, from all over the country that i found of people just making choices for themselves yes. that really worked for them. And I always found in, in my work as a state senator here in New Hampshire that, you know, if people have a stake and a say in, in what's going on in their communities, it, it comes out much better. It does. You know, if it's all being done to them, it, you know, people don't feel connected to it. I mean, it's happened that way with housing so-called solutions through the years where, where you know, it, it just comes down from the federal government, but they, they don't have an investment. In it. When, when people can participate directly in decisions which affect their lives, I tell you, I think that is something that right and left can agree on that, you know, giving uh, local people uh, some chances to decide for themselves. And and one of the issues that I found really fascinating when I was in the New Hampshire Senate was the ability of municipalities to address local issues. They, for example, there's one uh, big city that took over its private water company and municipalized it so that local people could make decisions about that. I wonder if such solutions, as we're both talking about here, might be a way of leaving the red-blue split behind and moving forward instead. Well, I think that's right. And, and that's, I, w- I was traveling before the election really ramped up, mm-hmm. but I did find that people, people were less interested in that red-blue question than they were in the pragmatic issues around what works and how can we make our community better, and how can we make it work for our children? Yeah. Those were really the salient issues. And, you know, some people 
would offhandedly admit that they were on one side or the other of the political spectrum. But that wasn't what was most important to people. So, yeah, I think, I think it's a way that we can get away from some of that gridlock, some of that vitriol that we've been, been seeing in the election recently. Mm. It was an ugly election, my goodness gracious. And I, I just uh, wanted to get back a little bit. You were talking about North Dakota and fracking. And I learned from your book that from 2004 to 2014, the number of working oil wells, uh, aside from fracking in North Dakota, nearly quadrupled to more than 12,000. Interesting that the violent crime rate there also rose some 120% over roughly the same period. Any reason to suspect those two figures could be related, the uh, increasing number of oil wells and and uh, the crime rate? How might that be connected? What did you find on that? Well, I think I think the the numbers show that when there's a a really rapid boom as well as when there's a bust, that's when crime rates tend to go up because it disrupts things. So in the case of the boom in North Dakota, what that's meant is tremendous numbers of people coming from outside, uh, predominantly men, to work in the oil fields and living in these man mm-hmm. camps where they don't feel that kind of long-term commitment to the uh-huh. place that they're living. Uh-huh. They're making a lot of money. They're doing really hard work. You know, many of them use drugs or prostitution as a way of spending some of that money and, and relieving some of the stress of their work day. Oh, but they don't have that kind of long-term commitment to the community uh-huh. that you would have in a place that has a, a, a rooted economy and where people stay put. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's so important that we really look at how to have an economy that's not an extractive boom-and-bust economy mm. where you extract a bunch of wealth. Some, some people... Not, not necessarily the people in that community make a lot of right, profit. Right. And then they move on to the next place, often leaving behind some real environmental catastrophes mm. as mm. they go. Instead, we need a kind of an economy that's built on that sense of long-term connection to a place. And when we have that, we do have a lot less crime because we're accountable to one another. We sort of keep an eye on one another, and yeah. we know we have responsibilities to the people that are immediately around us. Mm. Boy, that, you know, I have to say that sounds pretty conservative in, you know, from what I know of the real meaning of, of conservatism, you know, a sense of community, looking out for one another, uh, and and the idea, you know, that the picture of the extractive thing, you know, the big money comes in, you know, with, with loans from the big banks, take out all the oil, make a lot of money, and move on. <sighs> That's no good. It doesn't, it's, it's not a good thing. And you found a lot of reality on the ground, and I think that's one of the values of, of this book here, uh, The Revolution, Where You Live. And, uh, of course, my candidate, Bernie Sanders, recognized that climate change is a huge issue. And, you know, there are ways of dealing with it at the federal level. It needs to be done. Of course, uh, federal policies can do much to address and slow down carbon emissions. Uh, but but one reason for your journey was to find signs that we can still turn things around before we hit a climate arm, Armageddon. <laughs> what answers did you find in the coal-rich, I mean, you talk about pollution, coal-rich uh, Otter, Val- Otter Creek Valley of Montana. I mean, coal is a terrible pollutant. And, you know, uh, the incoming President Trump has talked about bringing back coal in uh, West Virginia. It isn't going to happen. What what's going on, you know, at the local level in places like uh, Otter Creek Valley in Montana? 
Well, first, I just want to say on the on the coal question more broadly: is there are now more people working in the solar industry than there are in all the fossil fuel industries combined? Really? So oh. it's really important to understand where jobs really come from. Interesting. In the Otter Creek Valley in, in Montana, this was this is a remote part of southeast Montana. It's mainly filled with ranches nearby. There's the Northern Cheyenne Tribe. And Arch Cole had in mind to build this gigantic strip mine that would have taken out billions of, of tons of coal over the course of its life. It, the idea was then to transport that. They'd have to build a new railroad spur to hook into the main line, then transport it to the West Coast where they would build a brand new coal terminal to ship that coal off to China. And of course, in in Asia, people are already suffering terribly from all the coal smoke. Many people are dying from from the smog and the pollution there. So it's not really good for them. It's not good for the people who would have to have that coal port in their territory. That was the Lummi tribe, and the Lummi tribe was adamantly opposed to having that coal terminal put in on their traditional lands. And then it's really bad for the for the for the ranchers who are out there who have this wonderful and quiet way of life and mm. value it tremendously and, mm-hmm. and feel a real responsibility to the land and the water that they have inherited from their parents and their grandparents and feel like they have that responsibility to pass it along intact to their children and grandchildren. And it was so interesting hearing that their way of describing that responsibility was very similar to the way that the tribe, the, the Northern Cheyenne people, also described their responsibility to take care of the land and the water and to pass that along to their children into the to the seventh generation into the future. Right. So it was both groups were working really hard to preserve that that land and that water and because they came from that place when they went to the legislature to talk uh-huh. they brought with them a special kind of moral authority that might not have been the case if it had been a big national environmental group making that same Case. Oh, interesting. And they brought with them a lot of passion. So they were willing to read those 100-page-long documents or fly to Washington, D.C. to make their case. They were willing to keep at it year after year until they were finally able to win. The coal company finally said, no, nope, we're not going to build that mine. <laughs> we understand that there's too much what they call regulatory uncertainty, which is another name <laughs> for the, the protesters won. So it, it was one of those victories and, and an enormously important thing for the climate as well because that is uh, all those billions of tons of coal that will not be burned up and that will not contribute to the climate crisis. Yeah, the old traditional you know, uh, materials for, for heating, like over in, in Ireland, they used to uh, cook with uh, peat bog. And it's all very quaint and everything, but man, does it pollute. <laughs> Same with, you know, coal as well. And we, we're moving on beyond that. And a fascinating story about the, 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 the credibility and the passion that local people have. Uh, you, you, we just kind of alluded indirectly to the fact that you encamped at Standing Rock, which is now rather famous. It was put on hold by President Obama's Interior Department. Do we miss him? Yes, we do. Uh, which was at least a temporary victory. I, of course, hope it will not be restarted by the Trump administration. I'm not sure how they can. But if it is, why do you say that, that victory can still be claimed by those resisting the project? You know, it's a temporary halt. Maybe it's a permanent halt. How can, how can it be called a victory 
you know, if it eventually does start up again? Well, you know, there are pipelines now proposed and in the works all over the country. And all over the country you see people resisting those pipelines. They understand that they, that they rupture, they spill oil. Some of them degrade in places like the Kalamazoo River or the Yellowstone River are degrading the river for months or years afterwards. So this struggle is going on all over the country. Standing Rock is a particularly striking and moving example of the resistance because it actually started when a group of young people from one of the most impoverished tribes in the country hmm. decided to run to Washington, D.C. to make their case. Oh, no kidding. So if you can imagine somebody saying, you know, I think, I think a group of, of young teenagers, you know, getting, getting out on the road with nothing but their feet and running to Washington, D.C. Hmm. to ask for this pipeline to be stopped, that's going to start a national movement. I think you'd say that was crazy. But but that's what happened. Those young people wow. made that stand, and then the tribe came with them, you know, stood with them, and then they put out a call to other tribes, and pretty soon literally hundreds of other tribes were showing up there and just saying, no, this is, this is wrong, and, and we support you. And if you, if you go to Standing Rock, you see this long row of flags from uh-huh. sovereign tribal nations from all over the country and, and elsewhere in the world people saying, you know, we stand with you. And, and that's really unprecedented that the tribes would be so unified. So that's one thing that changed, is that level of unity around the right of a, of a sovereign tribal nation to protect its, protect its drinking water. You might know that the pipeline was earlier designated to go near to Bismarck, North Dakota, but the community there objected. They didn't want that kind of risk for their drinking water, and so they moved it instead to right by the reservation and... So, so people are basically saying, you know what, that, that just doesn't fly. So that's one victory, is the, is the unity of, yeah. of the tribal nations. The power of the nonviolent stance there is another. Mm. There was, uh, you know, one, one incident after another where people stood up to rubber bullets and fire hoses yes. and attack dogs oh, yeah. and mace, and they did not do any, any sort of violence in response. Even somebody saying a harsh word, other people would say, no, no, the elders don't want you to talk that way. So even a harsh word was, was you know, was reined in. And I, when I was there, I attended a forgiveness walk where hmm. a, a young Native person said, you know, we, to do this work in a good, prayerful way, we have to let go of all of our anger, even, even after we've gone through the kind of, of police assault that they had, that they had gone through. And so they, they actually marched to the Morton County Sheriff's Department with a sign that said, Love and Forgiveness, and, and they prayed along the way. They prayed for the well-being of the police, and they prayed for their own ability oh. to forgive. Hmm. So that is another thing that they accomplished. And then there's the, the way the veterans showed up and yes, the clergy showed up. The wonderful. veterans showed up to support the Standing Rock people, and while they were there, they... They asked the tribe for forgiveness. They said, you know, that mm. our, our military and our country have done things to Native people that were wrong, and we're sorry, and we ask for forgiveness. Oh and so that's another moment where this country was able to look at our own history, at some of the wrongs that have been done to the people who were on this continent before Europeans arrived, and to say, that was wrong. We want to move beyond that. We want to move to a new era of respect for one another and respect for the first peoples of this nation. 
So there were so many things accomplished that a whole other generation of young young Native people, I think, now understand their own power and the, the importance of their own culture in a way that I don't think they, they did before this. So so many things have been accomplished by, by Standing Rock. Boy, I mean, it's like a different definition of power, what it really means. And I, I still think, uh, you know, to be a, a progressive Democrat in New Hampshire, one has to have some degree of optimism and ready for challenges. And, and what, uh, people connect, you know, people who are not part of this, uh, who may have been just, you know, watching the thing on their televisions, they get it. There's that power of connection. Something in humans, I, I think, you know, doing the right thing it's very powerful. It's more powerful than money. It's more powerful than, uh, you know, just money. It's very powerful. And this is very uplifting and optimistic. And my goodness, we need it these days. Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking with Sarah Van Gelder, author of the new book, The Revolution, Where You Live. Stories from a 12,000-mile journey through a new America. And, uh, and among the various places you visited... Detroit, it's become really the epitome of Rust Belt America on the decline. It's, from what my picture of it, is really bad. I mean, for decades, the big automakers were the vertebrae, if you will, that kept the city upright, kept it strong and healthy. First, are those days over? My sense is they are. Is a revival of that industry one big solution that could still happen and take care of things? And second, what did you find there that might be evidence of seeds of hope starting to germinate and grow in Detroit? Well, I, I think if we look at what needs to happen to really take on the climate crisis, one of the things we need is to retool our infrastructure and retool our transportation and energy systems so that they're climate friendly. Here's and that would create an enormous amount of jobs, and a lot of them would be in manufacturing or could be in manufacturing. So if you imagine that Detroit, that some of the abandoned plants there and some of the abandoned skills that still reside there in the people that are there, if those were put to work on high-speed rail lines and on and the train cars and on windmills and solar panels and all the things we need to make that conversion, that could that could really bring that, that economy back. But that wasn't what I was actually looking at, because I think that that, that has yet to happen, that we have yet to see that kind of a, uh, of a commitment and investment. In yeah, our, that needs federal future. help, yeah. I was looking more at what people were doing within some of those abandoned neighborhoods and some of those places that have, been, have had investments withdrawn have uh, even even the water system, even something so basic as water coming Huge. into people's homes, Ugh. the the disinvestment has meant that people have have uh, have seen their their water system decay and the water bills skyrocket and people getting shut off from water so that so that it's almost like a natural disaster where people are bringing in water in yeah. in uh, in tanker trucks and in barrels to set up water stations for people who don't have it. So, yeah, there's, there's tremendous hardship there. And what I found was people who also understood that they could create a different kind of future for themselves in, mm. those, in those abandoned communities. I remember I interviewed one man. His name is Will Copeland. He's a, an activist, an environmental activist, African-American, in, during a March for Justice in Detroit. 
And I asked him, you know, where does he see power coming from? And he said, you know, when we understand our own culture and our own values, and we know what's important and what's not important, that's a real source of power. And I thought a lot about that because, because you know, we've got this idea that somehow our well-being is reliant on, on all the stuff, on the, all the consumerism, you know, that, that whole ethos of, of having, keep, not only keeping up with the Joneses, but having more than the Joneses. Yeah. And if, if that's our definition of success, then we're kind of powerless because most of us will never be able to, to achieve the kind of wealth we see on television. But if we define our success more by our own values, then we can be successful and much more powerful that way. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. I, I, I'm going to have to think about that a bit. I think that's very uh, thought-provoking. You know, success, what does it mean? What is successful? You know, we see uh, a lot of people, well, some people with a tremendous amount of money who obviously are not real happy. And how do you define success? And uh, it sounds like you were finding some kind of new definitions of, of, of real success, a, a sustainable sense of success. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. And, and I think we don't, we don't recognize that's happening because television, yeah. the whole advertising industry is so set on making us want more stuff and making right. us feel that we're inadequate without the latest whatever yeah. or gadget or consumable. Uh. And, and we kind of buy that, uh. that either that's true or that that's how other people <laughs> view us and view the world. We don't get that feedback that, you know, that's really not where happiness comes from, even though almost every religious tradition in the world teaches us right. that, that that is not the source of happiness, that the source of well-being, the source of joy, the source of... of Spiritual transcendence is not stuff. It goes far deeper than that. Yeah, I find it fascinating that you know the the uh, the big interest, the big uh, banks, people like that. They will they would suggest that what you're talking about. Oh, it's so naive. You know, this making more stuff is real. You know, so there's the image. The, the, what we get presented to us about what brings real happiness coming down from the top imposed on us. This is what you, you know, we know better than you. But finding that what's coming up from real people, you know, just in various places uh, across the country, uh, you learn what real success is. And one, you know, that having to buy more and more stuff and having to have the latest iPhone, whatever, before everybody else does, it's a a sick addiction. I mean, it really is. And having to buy more stuff, you never, ever, ever get satisfied, no matter how much stuff you have. I, at least I've been finding that. I suspect you have too. And, and you're finding some, some good stories about uh, success. And getting back to Detroit, uh, places sometimes attract the sort of resources they most need. The, the, there's something called the Boggs Center in Detroit, which is perfectly suited there. Tell us about how long, how it has long helped the community make a way out of no way, as you say. The Boggs Center. It, yeah, the Boggs Center is was started by James Bogg, who is an African American auto worker, part of the Great Migration from the South to uh, Northern cities for jobs and also to get away from the yeah. white supremacist terrorism, essentially, that was, was sure. dominating in the South. So he came to Detroit to do that and um, met Grace Boggs, uh, who was ordinary, uh, earlier was Grace Lee, uh, who was the first Chinese-American PhD, woman, Ph.D., I believe, at the, at the university she graduated from. 
And the two of them were very interested in, in political theory, had lots of uh, discussion groups in Detroit, especially in the black community, especially in the, in the auto-working community. Mm. And over time, they developed a, an idea of where change comes from that I think is, is a really inter- interesting set of conversations. They, <clears throat> they got very involved when uh, Coleman Young was running for mayor because they were very excited to, that there would be an African-American mayor of Detroit. But when he, when he won, they realized that a lot of his policies were the same old, same old. So they got a little disillusioned with that and started saying, no, we need to rebuild the community from the ground up. We need to do it on our own terms, and we need to be the leaders. We can't just be looking for the right person to just sort of put up there on a pedestal and expect them to lead. So part of what they've done is they've inspired a couple of generations of Detroiters who've actually now spread out around the country to, to really understand themselves. In many cases, these are black Americans to understand themselves as the leaders, as the people who need to be coming up with the solutions and making things work in their own communities. Yes. So it's a really inspiring group of people who, who think a, a lot and think deeply about those kinds of things. And when I, every time I go to Detroit, Detroit's actually a place I, I tend to come back to every few years, I, I'm always finding these really creative kinds of innovations going on, everything from a, a 3D printing lab where young people can learn computer, computer-oriented design and then fabricate everything from, a, from an iPhone all the way up to a house, you know, to something as low-tech as uh, local, local gardening and farming and the food distribution systems that make sure that people can get healthy food even in, in what, what are often called food deserts, places that, mm. that simply have no grocery stores. Hmm. i got to wonder sometimes, you know, for, for development... Capital is pretty much always needed, and I wonder about you know some of these uh, uh, smaller uh, projects getting access to to the capital that they need. I mean, I can imagine some of the big banks you know will walk away from it. But what did you find with regard to access to to loans to uh, to help create these things? Well, that is, I think that is one of the bottlenecks to a different kind of economy getting started. I, I spent a lot of time looking at, at cooperative economies and found some, some really great examples of that. Uh, people, for example, who are working with retiring baby boomers who are business owners and, and talking to them about getting them to sell their enterprise to their employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's happening, and yet it's still relatively small scale. And I think that is one of the big questions, is can some of that money that's now, you know, when we put our money in our retirement or in our, in our bank, or we're, we're, we're working with those big Wall Street banks, and yes. they're investing not in our communities, exactly. but in, in many cases, speculative ventures, things like the Dakota Access Pipeline that mm-hmm. so many of us love to hate. Mm-hmm. Instead of investing in the, in the enterprises that can really build our communities in the long run, so as people are divesting, taking their money out of those big banks, yes, yes. either because of Dakota Access Pipeline or because of fossil fuel investments more generally, or for whatever other reasons, many of them are looking for other places to invest. Some of them are putting that money into credit unions. And, sure. and credit unions do invest back in their communities. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a really good option. And community development finance institutions yes. often do the same thing. I think over time, if we see a shift of our financial investments to those kinds of community-oriented funds, 
we can also see a, a real renaissance in the local economy that could be funded by that. I believe it's starting. They're, they're recognizing that microloans and, and smaller you know, in, investments in these uh, less gambling situations uh, do pay off. I mean, banks are paying interest these days. Uh, I, they're not even paying interest at all, really. Uh, again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Sarah Van Gelder, co-founder of Yes Magazine, and a forward, by the way, by, by Danny Glover. The book is called The Revolution Where You Live, Stories from a 12,000-Mile Journey Through a New America. We talked about uh, Detroit, another city with a less than stellar attractiveness, shall we say, is Newark, Newark, New Jersey. Nork, I guess they call it, actually. Uh, some big cities have bought into the old trickle-down theory that by bringing in wealthy residents, somehow that's supposed to work. Of course, it never, ever does. That theory has been proven wrong again and again. What is Newark doing that is starting to show success in some of the long-neglected communities? Well, they, they elected a new mayor just a couple of years before I arrived there to, to visit, Mayor Roz Baraka, who came out of the neighborhoods, came out of years of doing community organizing. So he had a real and has a real commitment to the people who are already there. And I think that's right. A lot of times people think of economic development as bringing in a big corporation to offer jobs right, or bringing right. in a new class of young, creative people, as, they, as they're termed, which sometimes is code word for, for gentrification, mm. for bringing in <laughs> white folks and displacing uh, yes. low-income people of color. Indeed. So his view is, is to make sure that the people there can enjoy the benefits of the resurgence, the, the rebirth of, of Newark. So he's focusing on two neighborhoods that have been especially neglected, especially impoverished. And there's a number of different initiatives underway there, but one of the ones that was, was most visible was a mural project. He's having mm. uh, artists, commissioning artists, to work with local businesses or, or uh, apartment buildings where there's a big blank wall and having them do giant murals on those walls to reflect back to the community that they're valuable, that they're full of people who are beautiful and, and that their community matters too. And on one of those murals, I found something written that, that I, I just found inspiring and, and sort of mind-bending it was in one of these really degraded neighborhoods. On the top strip along the, the top of the wall was a big advertisement for some furniture store or something because they, they only got access to the lower part of the wall. But on the lower part, part of the wall, it was a phrase that said, we the people love this place. Hmm. And then it said, we the people call this place our home. And it just reminded me that, that for for the people who grew up there and whose families are there and her, whose neighbors are there, you know, they have memories of this place and they care about it, just like those ranchers and Native people out in Montana. They care about their place and they want it to work and they love it. And there's a power in that and a willingness to, to step forward. In this case, they're looking to the city, I think, to, to lend a hand, too, because there's been so many years of impoverishment. It's hard to do without some, some assistance from, yeah. from, from government. But there's a willingness there to make this place really work, to, to show up with their vision and say, this is how we want it to be, hmm. and we can work together to make it so. 
I can't help but be reminded, as you may have gathered by now, I'm a kind of a fan of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Back then, when post offices were big centers of town, that's where people went. That's where you know one of the places people uh, gathered. There were post office murals that Roosevelt and partially through uh, Lorena Hickok, I believe, uh, inspired artists, local artists, to paint murals of what's valuable in their local area. And it gave people, it helped improve the sense of place, the sense of belonging, and the spirit of the community. That's, that's fascinating that uh, I, I think uh, stuff like that, murals, uh, you know, being proud of your identity as a community, it's, it's important. Another lovely city you went to is Cincinnati. Another Rust Belt, formerly heavily unionized city on the decline. I've, I've heard a little bit about the new union-run cooperatives that got going in recent years. Tell us about them and, and how they're working out in Cincinnati. Yeah, so the I think the union movement has been feeling pretty embattled. It, it has been, sure. um, the, at least the traditional unions have been losing a lot of their battles when, when large corporations can either threaten or actually just pick up and move overseas, the, the ability to keep wages and benefits high for their members has been, has been pretty difficult to maintain. And, and of course, membership roles are declining, yeah, yeah. especially in, in the private sector. So these, these unions that I encountered there in Cincinnati, they're actually collaborating with the faith community and with the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain. Uh-huh to see if they can create union unionized cooperatives. Yes. They can instead of just trying to negotiate with a company that really has its its main interest is in extracting profit. Right. They can just own a right. certain number of businesses themselves. Right. The workers own those businesses and those are businesses then that are rooted in their community and are working for the benefit of the community and the benefit of their workers. So I visited a couple of those. One is is based on a, a food system, all the way from mm. growing the food in a couple of different farms through to a food hub where they collect food from their farms but also from other local farmers and sell it to hospitals and schools and so forth. And then they're also working on a local grocery store in a neighborhood in Cincinnati that is lacking in adequate uh, food retailers. So they're working all the, all the way up and down the food chain there to make food more available to people and to create jobs that will stay local. One of the people I spoke to was a, a young man who had been working at a chicken processing plant, and he had been part of an effort to try to unionize that plant. And as so often happens in that kind of situation, he, he ended up getting fired. Right. So he's now part of this co-op and now feeling like, okay, now I can make things happen that work for me and my family, but also work for me and my coworkers. And, and he's part owner, and that's that's such a different yeah. kind of relationship oh my goodness, to yes. one's income and one's livelihood when you own a piece of it, and you can make yes. plans for the long term, and you can be part of the decision-making, yes. you can be part of a democratic Whoa. workplace. It's such a different experience than feeling like, okay, I, I know this week I have work, but I don't know what will happen next week or, right. or the week after. That kind of that kind of way of life is, is so precarious and so insecure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was something I was really inspired by. And right after I left, they had a conference where they brought people together from all over the country who were interested in that 
union manufacturing co-op model, and and it's a it's a model that's beginning to spread. Well, that is exciting. I mean, democracy in action. What a concept! Let's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we like democracy here. Some of us do, and this you know, in the face of of what's going on at the national level, this is. Very inspiring, and you know, it's it's a way to uh, new way to look at things. And moving from the Midwest, going to the old Confederacy, uh, you went to some states in the in the old South. One thing Trump is known for is his anti-immigrant, rather racist stance, especially Muslims in general and Syrians in specific. In Southern states, as you mentioned, the church is often the glue that holds the community together. Much much different from, from us here in the uh, cold Northeast. It, it's much more so than in the North. What did you find in a Dallas, Texas congregation regarding the issue of Syrian refugees? Fascinating. I was there right when three families were to be settled from Syria in the state of Texas, one of those families was due to arrive in Dallas, Texas. That family consisted of two grandparents, two adults, and two children. And yet it, it was as though the city was under attack. I mean, there, is, yeah. there were people who were speaking out against them and against all Muslims. Mm-hmm. And it was, there, there was some, some fairly ugly rhetoric going on, and, and the governor had promised to sue to keep this family out of Dallas. So that was the atmosphere when I arrived. And, and the question I had was, you know, are, are there any other voices out there? Are, are other people saying anything different about that? So I went to a couple of churches that I had reason to believe might, might be in that category. One was a large, big-box church, uh, you know, the ecumenical kind of church that, that's on the ascension as, the, uh, as some of the more traditional churches have been shrinking in size. Mm-hmm. This one catered mainly to gay and lesbians. They had three church services every Sunday, wow. one in Spanish. Jeez. And I spoke to the pastors afterwards and said, you know, you're, you're clearly in favor of being welcoming to the gay and lesbian community. Would you also welcome a Syrian family to be part of your community? And they said, oh, absolutely. In fact, ah. they were planning to take a group of, con- of the congregation and go out to a suburb of Dallas, where there was a mosque that had been regularly picketed by neo-Nazis and and Klan members. They're planning to bring a bunch of their congregants out there that Saturday to stand with the mosque in solidarity. I went to another church, a Methodist church in another part of town, and asked the same question. In this church, the pastor stood up in the front, even before I had a chance to ask the question, he stood up in the front of his congregation with with a little tiny plastic bowl filled with coins, and he said, you know, this, this six-year-old member of our congregation collected these coins to give to the Syrian family. So this was a church that just felt like, you know, all human beings are sacred, and, mm-hmm. you know, part of, part of the mission of a Christian organization is to welcome in the stranger, not to reject them just because of their heritage. So today as well, we're planning to go to stand with that same mosque that, that weekend. So, you know, what I, what I found was that things are not so black and white. There's, there's people everywhere who are really of, of that kind of welcoming and compassionate mindset. And, and I think it's important not to, to paint too broad a brush that mm-hmm. certain areas of the country are all one thing or all the other thing. Mm, and to, to give point. them some, some 
some attention to because because they're they're an example of the kind of courage that I think we're all mm-hmm. going to need to tap into as, as we move into this new administration. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And another town in the deep south you visited is Greensboro, North Carolina, where I remember in 1979 uh, the Ku Klux Klan attacked and killed five left-leaning anti-Klan demonstrators, killed uh, five and and wounded ten others. Interesting that you found local solutions underway there, facing the ugliness of the past as part of healing that community. Tell us about that local effort, please. Yeah, so that was a that was an incident that was obviously traumatizing for for the entire community, oh, certainly sure. for those related to the people who had been killed or injured, um, and and for a while that that trauma just sort of festered under the surface. Yeah. It wasn't really dealt with, and and as time went on, there were different stories that emerged about what happened and who was at fault and. You know, were were the demonstrators so provocative that somehow they deserved to be mm. shot at? Was it a shootout, really, rather than a massacre? And and at a certain point, some people in the community decided, you know, it was time to really bring out what actually happened, to bring that out into the public. So they decided to hold a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, like the one in South Africa after apartheid, uh-huh. to, to really hear people's stories and find out what happened. So they, they ended up doing that without without any help from the city government. The city government refused to participate. The state refused, you know, had no, nothing to do with it. It turned out to be just a group of members of the community who were well respected, with a few people from outside who who came in principally as uh, to facilitate the process. And they they did listen to people's stories, people who were on all sides of the issue. They had one one person apologize for what had happened. And they put together a report that, that mm. just explained, you know, okay, here here is what actually took place. So it it wasn't that it that it had some kind of a huge cathartic effect. I think a lot of fix people right. still had had feelings that they, you know they didn't want to talk about it or they 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 just wished that it it would go away. But one of the things the report did do is it made it less less able, it made it less possible for people to deny what had really happened. And in a time when when fake news is so prevalent, it, it becomes really important for people to just have the facts. And then hmm. certainly everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but at least if you have the actual facts of what took place, as well as the particular perspective, if you've heard the particular perspective of the people who were actually there, then I think think we just have a better ability to to uh, to make our own draw our own conclusions and, and to come together I think that uh, with your magazine yes with the exclamation point deep-seated hope has been you know a hallmark of your writing for years and like all sane patriotic Americans you join in the feeling of shock of course at how the election turned out and fear for the direction we're heading in we could be heading but you contend that Revealing those emotions, facing fear head-on, rather than denying those emotions, could ultimately really be be helpful. I know this is a little bit off-subject, but I wonder if you could talk to that just a little. Yeah, sure. I I was actually at Standing Rock when I when I heard the election results. I I, oh, I didn't expect those results because I had been relying on the polls, which I thought were pretty clear that that the, the election would go the other way. Yeah. 
And one of the first things I did when I emerged from my icy tent on, on the Standing Rock encampment and, and heard the news was to, was to write a column that I, that I was able to email into my colleagues at Yes about what had just happened and, and what we needed to do about it. And one of, I, I basically have three R's, mm. resist, reconnect, and revitalize our communities. Ooh, I like that. Under the reconnect part, I, I feel like one of the first things we have to do in a time like this, when when certain groups of people have been explicitly targeted by the president, you know, we, we need to we need to reach out to those people. We need to, you know, it, whether it's whether it's Muslims or whether it's immigrants or or people providing women's health services or school teachers who are trying to continue teaching the the science of evolution, whatever group it is, is getting targeted. We need to reach out to each other in our communities yes. so we can create that basic safety from which we can operate. And one of the other things I said is, you know, I don't think we have to pretend when we reach out to people across the political spectrum, I don't think we have to pretend that we're not appalled yeah. by the, the election results. I think we can be authentic and vulnerable in our authenticity. That doesn't mean calling pe- people names. Right. It just means owning our own experience, that, that this is a result that makes us feel fearful or makes us feel really saddened or makes us feel uh, to question the compassion of our country, we can own those kinds of feelings. And I think when we're authentic about our own feelings, that helps other people who may be in any place politically to, to understand us better and also perhaps to reveal their own emotions and why they chose the way they chose. And if we understand each other that way, I think we have a better foundation to rebuild from. What was that? Resist, revitalize, reconnect? Those are the three R's there? Resist, because I think we're going to see policies that are going to be very, very Ugh. damaging to yes. our society, and I think we, we have a responsibility to resist those. I, I don't think the Trump administration comes in with a mandate. He, he no. lost the popular vote. He won with the assistance of a foreign power, Russia. Mm. I, don't uh, I don't think we have to accept that there's a mandate to do the kinds of policies that he's been claiming he's going to do, reconnect in terms of reconnecting in our communities yes. and creating that sense of safety for one another so that we have a foundation on which we can build and then revitalize. Because I think even while the policies are coming down from Washington, D.C. that could be so destructive to our communities, we can't afford to wait until that administration is done. We need to be doing good work now yes. on issues like climate change and issues like racism and, and inequality. We can do it. The book is called The Revolution Where You Live. Our guest has been Sarah Van Gelder, Yes Magazine. Thank you so much for being with us. It's I really good. enjoyed myself. Thank you so much for having me. A little bit of optimism and the idea of democracy. We like it. Thanks so much. There's a new world to come and near Singing loud and clear Revolution Feel that rumbling along the ground It's a mighty Good times roll, revolution.